The following message is entitled, Tri-Power Transformation, Part 4. This message was given during the morning service on May 8, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. For the sake of those listening remotely, the sermon title is Tri-Power Transformation, Part 4. Tri-Power refers to three forms of power that work out in the believer's life. In the introduction this morning, then, let's review the first three parts. Point, goal, point number one. I had two goals in the first three parts. Let's look at goal number one. Fill in the blank, if you're interested, of this series in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. The first goal I had was to show from the Bible the powerlessness, powerlessness, that means no power, the powerlessness of the human heart or mind. Remember, mind, soul, spirit, and heart are all synonymous terms in the Bible. Powerlessness of the human heart to save or sanctify one's life. The powerlessness of the human heart to save or sanctify one's life. That's as a believer. Okay, as well as an unbeliever. Saved would refer to unbelievers getting saved. That does not change once you get saved. Your human heart has no power. I've defended that scripturally. We did that already outside of this text. Goal number two in those first three parts was to show from the Bible the only infinite power to save and sanctify a human is the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ. Goal number two was to show from the Bible the only infinite power to save and sanctify a human is the Spirit of Christ. You can't debate someone into conversion. You can't force them into conversion. The Crusades sadly tried to convert people through force, military power. You can do it exterior-wise, but you cannot bring the human heart under submission to Christ through coercion or manipulation, debate, or anything else. Now today, since we were in those first two goals in the first three parts, we're outside the text. Now today, we start to microscope the text of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. Let's read these two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. That's where this outline stopped in your note sheet. Now here's the tri-power transformation. Grace, mercy, and peace. One, two, three. From God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This then today begins this textual examination of this threefold manifestation of the power of God in a believer's life. He's talking to believers. The context of this epistle is it's written to first to Timothy as the pastor at that time of the Ephesian church. There's some big guns that were at the Ephesian church. The Apostle John, Timothy, um, some other uh, disciples of the apostles, and of course Paul himself had a direct impact on this Ephesian church. And Timothy is there currently, and so Paul is first writing to him. Secondly, to the Ephesian church, this as well as 2 Timothy and Titus are epistles written for how a local church is to function. This is transcendent truth. What that means is it's for all cultures, all ages, all Christians, anywhere at any time. 
These are an absolute apostolic standard of how local churches are to run. Our church is supposed to function based on what takes place in the pages of First and Second Timothy and Titus. Called pastoral epistles, but they're also church-forming, church-equipping, church-growing epistles. And so this is for believers, for leaders first, and then secondly for believers and for local churches on how to function. And Paul is not just giving in verse 2 then a bunch of introductory spiritual words that mean nothing. We can very easily look at verse 2 and say, oh yes, uh, good morning, grace, mercy, and peace, same thing. You know, when we think about good morning, I was uh, asked good morning, I was, had somebody say good morning to me at Skyway the other day, and just as a joke, I said, what's good about it, just to see if they were listening to me. They didn't respond, the person wasn't listening. It's just a verbiage, Right? Uh, I found out in the black community, when somebody says to you, what's happening, if a black person says that to me, that does not mean they want to know what's happening. And I've told you that before. And uh, I've, I said, well, I can tell you what's happening. No, no, and I was told by, it's a cultural thing. What's happening means just basically, from what I've been told by black individuals, that, uh, hey, how's it going? And I don't really even want to know how it's going, or that type of thing, so... <laughs> So we can look at verse 2 and say, oh, he's just kind of introducing everything. Everything's grace, mercy, and peace. Okay, we can skip all that and go on. No, you can't do that. Paul is not just giving us uh, verbiage that is mindless here. The Spirit of God doesn't do that. He's informing Timothy and us right up front in this epistle that neither a Christian leader like Timothy or Paul or Christians in general like the Ephesian church or our church can operate properly without this trilogy of power. You cannot operate in the Christian life without this trilogy. On the blank lines under goal number two then, this trilogy of power must be manifest in order to grow in godliness. This trilogy of power must be manifest in your life in order to grow in godliness, which means then you need to know what these three words mean and you need to know how to appropriate them. These three terms then are not just verbiage, they're not just... Um, introductory, glib things that you can bypass. These are extremely vital to your Christian life. Grace, mercy, and peace. Each one is distinct and manifests power in a particular way. And we're going to look at what they are. Peace, we're going to spend very little time on because I did a two-year series on peace. That one's going to just be a paragraph of thought and then we'll go on because I've already given you kind of a doctoral dissertation on what sanctifying peace is. But grace and mercy we haven't talked about for a while and we need to Say, well, that's what saves us. Okay, we're, we're going to get beyond the idea it's just a grace, mercy, I'm spared from hell, and grace is how we're saved. So uh, thank you very much. We've got those figured out. No, it's a lot more than that. This is how we operate. Now in the outline review, as you can see, I have outlined the first 20 verses of this chapter, which is the entire first chapter, as priority number one for any local church. God wants true churches to have pure doctrine in those churches. And you can see after this introduction, he jumps right into teaching issues and doctrine issues in verse 3. This is, again, what we face in evangelicalism and fundamentalism is complete defiance of this. Complete defiance. That the priority is not to be today doctrine and teaching the word. Uh, we're in the out season of preaching, as 2 Timothy 4, Paul predicted to Timothy in the next pastoral epistle. We've already arrived at in season and out of season. We're in out season preaching. Christians don't want a lot of this. I've had countless individuals that have come into this church looking for anything and everything other than the in-depth teaching of the word. We're to obey what Paul told, tells Timothy in Ephesian church to do. 
So that's priority number one in your outline. Roman numeral one under that in your outline is the church was founded by Christ and the apostles, verses one and two. And I gave kind of an in-depth study of Paul in verse one earlier in the introduction to the series. And then we, I took you on that very interesting uh, sin journey on Timothy's life. And we looked at first and second Timothy, if you remember, and saw nine major sins that were in his life. And yet Paul didn't tell him to resign. And so that was a whole analysis of how do I know as a believer that I can serve or not serve because I'm warring with sin? And we answered that question. When does sin shipwreck you? And when is sin part of your Christian battle as you're growing? And I answered those questions. Now letter C, the great trilogy empowering God's servants. The great trilogy empowering God's servants. Write it on the blank lines if you haven't already figured it out. The trilogy, write the three words, is grace, mercy, and peace. And where do they come from in verse 2? Wrong question. Who do they come from? Right question. Come from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. So on the blank lines, you and I can't drum up these power sources. We must tap God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. If we want them. And he's talking to believers. So we have to tap into this. These are sourced in Jesus Christ and God the Father, obviously, through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Okay? So if you want this power, it doesn't come from you. The power of grace, mercy, and peace comes from who again? God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is not a normal way that Paul introduces his epistles, by the way, just in case you think he just starts them all off this way. No, he does not. In fact, only here in verse 2 and in 2 Timothy does Paul use this complete trilogy of grace, mercy, and peace. The Apostle John's private letter to the elect lady is the only other place in the New Testament where this trilogy is used in 2 John 3. So let's start with tri-power Number one, which is, out loud, grace. Fill in your note sheet, point number one. Grace just may be the single greatest word and theological concept in the Bible. Grace just may be the single greatest word and theological concept in the Bible and supremely lived out in Christians. Most Christians think, well, I was saved by grace. That's the end of grace. Done. That was nice. That was back then. I received his grace. Saved me back then. Now we're done with it. No, we're not. Uh-uh. This is the single greatest word and theological concept in the Bible and supremely lived out in Christians. The focus here is Christians. Okay? He's talking to Timothy. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. He, he founds these power concepts right at the beginning before he jumps into admonishment of Timothy in verse 3, where he's begging him not to quit. Letter A under point number one. The Greeks use the word grace in everyday language to refer to just kind of like um, sharing benefits, giving things to others. And we're not talking about Bible definitions here. We're talking about the secular usage. That's why it says the Greeks use the word. To do a favor for somebody. Kind of that was the idea in everyday language. 
So the word comes out of Greek secular language, and the Greeks talked about doing favors for others. It's kind of lost in our society today. It seems to be reversing that you need to love me, I need to love myself, you need to do this for me, you need to do that for me. Sue and I were having fun the other day just reciting all these false phrases that Christians have fallen into using. You must love yourself before you can love others. That's false. That's unbiblical. You must forgive yourself before you forgive others. That's unbiblical. Uh, we need to have self-worth and self-esteem. That's unbiblical. God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. So we were just kind of chuckling at how much of this, uh, these trite aphorisms just float around among ignorant Bible-believing Christians who have no clue what the Bible teaches. Well, the term grace for the secular Greeks was not the same as it is in the Bible. So write that under letter A. There was no unconditional nature to this with the Greeks. I, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, I do something. I do a grace for you, you do a grace for me. In our society, in fact, the word grace comes up in self-grace. I'm gracing myself in this wicked me-first culture today. Now letter B, I've given you the English uh, spelling of the Greek word is called a transliteration. A transliteration means you take the Greek word and you use English letters to produce the same sound. So charis would be, I should have put ch in there, that was a mistake. Uh, C-H-A-R-I-S is from C-H-A-R. The root is care, not like I care for you. It's just C-H-A-R, it's a hardened thing. Like character, C-H, character, the word character, C-H, you don't say chariter. Okay, it's character, C-H, hardened, even in English. So you pronounce the C-H as a K. That's letter B there. And what does it mean for us? Well, again, the issue of favor bestowed, of course, is at the root of it, just like the secular Greeks. But we can't grace others this way, okay? This is charis, from the Lord. Charis comes from the Lord. Grace comes from the Lord. We can't save anybody else. For by grace are you saved. You can't save anybody else. So you can't get this. This is the spiritual. This comes from God. See in verse 2. So Charis, you can't do this. You can bestow favors on others. But you can't do this Charis here. In verse 2. Are we clear on that? This comes from the Lord. It's unconditional. Write that down under the letter B. Uh, literally, the word means to lean down towards. It, it implies superiority leaning down to inferiority. It's freely extended to people who don't deserve it. This is extremely important. You can do a favor for somebody who does deserve it. Kind of like a return favor, right? That's not this. God didn't grant us grace as a return favor for how good we are. It's unconditional from God. It is undeserving. And by the way, Karis is directly corresponding to the Hebrew term kana in the Old Testament. Same idea. It is God extending himself down towards us, reaching, inclining towards us. He is predisposed before the foundations of the world to offer grace to this planet. We don't deserve it. It is his act of empowerment to save and to sanctify. Grace is not a spiritual gobbledygook word. It is favor bestowed. When you, if you were to walk up to somebody and just say, I'm going to give you, do a favor for you, and then you walked away, the person would say, well, what's the favor? You don't just verbalize it. 
We don't walk around and say, grace to you, grace to you, grace to you, grace to you. What does that mean? That's like saying, praise the Lord. What does that mean, praise the Lord? Do it in the Psalms when it talks about praises. There's no praise in just saying the word praise. Okay? You don't walk around here. You shouldn't just say, praise the Lord. We'd say, well, what are you praising the Lord for, right? And so we don't say, grace, 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 mercy, and peace. What does that mean? It means that God is bestowing something on us. It's favor. It's empowerment. Okay? This is act of power. It means something. You don't say praise the Lord. You say, I praise the Lord for this. Or I praise God for who he is. Saying praise the Lord is just, it's, it's nonsense. You do realize that, right? There's that little chorus, let's just praise the Lord. It's one of the most ridiculous courses, sorry, I'm being nasty and blunt here, but praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let's just lift our hearts towards heaven and praise the Lord. Do it! That's just an introduction, right? See how we get lazy with stuff? Grace to you. You don't walk around and say, I'm going to do a favor, and then you do nothing. I favor you, I favor you, I favor you. How are you going to favor me, right? This is common sense. See how we get very just lazy in our verbiage? Grace, mercy, and peace. You can hear the Catholic priest doing it. Grace, mercy, and peace. What does that mean? He can't bestow grace, mercy, and peace. Where does it come from in verse 2? God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Letter C. Christ's grace is superior. Christ's grace is superior to how the word was used in Greco-Roman society. For it is freely offered and given. Christ's grace is superior to how the word is used in Greco-Roman society, for it is freely offered and given to those who do not love him. For it is freely offered and given to those who do not love him. That's all of humanity. Now, some would object to that right there. What do you mean? This humans can love God in their own way. No, they can't, actually. I've asked people before, I've told, taught you before, go to Galatians 5, can an unsaved human Love God. Huh? No. How do we know that? Galatians 5. Galatians chapter 5. Just turn over there real quick. Verse 22. We'll be coming back to Galatians 5 in a moment. But let's go there just now. What is love? A fruit of the what? So how do you love? You have to have what? Spirit of God. You can't be sanctified in love. You can't love others without the Spirit of God. No unsaved human can love God. And in fact, they can't love each other in a biblical way. They can't. They can be loving in a human way, but biblical love always includes the divine element, not just the human element. So you need to be clear on that one. So, um, letter C, Christ's grace is superior to how the word was used in Greco-Roman society, for it is freely offered and given to those who love him, which means it's given to all humanity. You're not born saved. You're not born a righteous and godly person. That's heresy. You're born a hell-bound sinner. We're heading to hell, and we are unloving wretches to renounce Christ. And this is where grace was offered to those who do not love him and are hell-bound. This is astounding that he would do this. You think that you have any right for God to cause you to be, grow as a Christian. That's wrong. I deserve to be godly, God. I'm saved now. You saved me by faith. Now I don't understand why you're not causing me to grow. I, I deserve. I am your child. I deserve for you to cause me to grow. That's heresy. 
Even as Christians, that's not true. We're saved by grace and we're sanctified by grace. You don't deserve the Spirit of God in your heart, and you and I don't deserve for Him to cause you to grow in godliness. You deserve nothing in a Christian life that's righteous and holy. Right? Because it's all of grace, right? And grace, grace is unmerited, not deserved favor. Not just to save, but to sanctify. Every day that you're living the Christian life, if you progress spiritually, you're receiving a favor from God to grow, to grow spiritually as a Christian. He didn't save you undeserving, and now you're deserving, and so every day you receive the Spirit in a deserving sort of way. No. Letter D. New Testament usage of the word was an infinite leap, L-E-A-P, leap forward for the concept of grace and was totally unheard of in the Greco-Roman society. Much like the concept is totally unheard of today and is seen as weakness. Medical ads, as I've told you before many times, to just irritate me. We have the power. Our society talks about being empowered. You have intrinsic power. This is all lies. Our society is pagan, and so pagans by paganos, the idea of a a person who is a pagan, historically a pagan, is someone who has a moral value that is completely the opposite of Judeo-Christian ethics. It comes from the Latin paganas, or paganas, and it refers to someone who does not live by our values. So when we talk about we're sinners and need grace to save us because we're not worthy, this society is pagan because it renounces that. You're telling me I'm bad? You're toxic. Don't you tell me that. None of that negativity. And the church just goes along with it. Okay, I'm so sorry that I offended you by telling you that you're a nasty pagan deserving of hell and that you have no righteousness within yourself and you have no power to transform yourself. I'm sorry. So I know it especially offends you when I tell you that you're a sinner. So I'm going to give you a new gospel. And a new gospel in the last 40 years is you don't need to repent to be saved. All you need to do is ask Jesus to save you. And you deserve it because you have great self-worth. The culture of the church just rolls over to paganism. And you'll find in this pagan society, the more you confront them on their sin, the more offended they will be. Unbelievers will reject this. They'll look like this. Who are you to tell me what I am? How dare you tell me something negative? So these doctor's commercials, they got their masks on, they're heroes, they're empowered. The one we saw on the Dan Ryan coming back from Wisconsin last night is, disease is relentless and so are we. And it's got this doctor staring at me like this. I got news for you, pal. You can't cure anything. Only God is a God that can cure. Pagan society. Be empowered. I read the after-death testimony of Arnold Schwarzenegger yesterday, or the day before. He was being interviewed this past week. You know, Mr. Muscles. You afraid of death? Oh, no, I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of death. No, not at all. No, I'm positive. We must think positively. It's a pagan. His own power, his own resources. He was in that horrible crash a few months ago. Turned his SUV up on his side. Walked away from it. It was a miracle. He should have been killed. No fear of death. Why? Because we're in control of our lives. See? And these are the wicked people that Christ still died for. So this is unheard of. 
To repeat point D, New Testament usage of the word is an infinite leap forward for the concept of grace and was totally unheard of in the Greco-Roman society because we're like them. We're pagans like the Romans now. Much like the concept is totally unheard of today and is seen as weakness. It's seen as weakness. This is an offense to talk about the need of salvation and by grace. There are serious and demonic and heretical forces in supposed evangelicalism today that are telling us that we have gotten the Apostle Paul's message wrong for the last 2,000 years. He wasn't preaching salvation by grace through faith. He was preaching a Jewish idiom or picture upon which you keep the law in order to get to heaven. Can you imagine twisting Paul's writings from grace to keeping the law? And the church just rolls right over to it. Because we are so unbiblical, so ignorant of the word of God, and we have no concept of how bad we really are, even still as believers. In case you've forgotten that, look at verse 15 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It doesn't say the elect. Ding, ding, ding. Who's a sinner on this planet? Everyone. Among whom I am, verb to be, Present active, I am personally, continuously, right now, foremost, number one sinner. That's Paul describing himself. That's what we are currently. We weren't sinners. We weren't sinners then, and then now we aren't. We were sinners then, and we still are now. And the more you grow in godliness, as Paul was, the more you realize that we ourselves are the worst sinners we know. By the way, when you really believe that, it really cuts down on whining, criticism, and condescending uh, gossip and slander about other people. If you just fixate on the fact that you're the worst sinner you'll ever know, that really cuts down on attitudes of hypercritical, sinful ways of looking at other believers. It's supposed to do that anyways. Letter E. Grace, then, here's your definition, is divine, unconditional, and undeserved power. Letter E. Grace is divine, unconditional, and undeserved power offered to hell-bound sinners to transform them into his image. Grace saves sanctifies and protects. That's the three arms of grace. Saves, sanctifies, and protects. Saves from hell, sanctifies currently, and protects us all the way to heaven. That's what 1 Peter 1 talks about. You've been born again unto a living hope in the future. So grace is powerful to do three things. It pulls you out of hell at conversion. It continuously transforms you into his image as a believer. And one day, when you die or raptured, you are protected unto heaven. That's power, folks. Save from hell, protected unto heaven, and in between, transforming you as a rotten, deserving of hell sinner into the image of Jesus Christ. I say that as massive power. What do you think? Oh, yeah. Now, what I tell you about the brakes? Throw both feet on the brakes like I did the other day when somebody cut in front of me. Both feet. Boom. Okay. Application time for the next 14 weeks. 
Look at the application. Most Christians do not think of grace as an act of power. It's just my understanding of it. In fact, this has happened many times in counseling. Somebody comes in with a problem, and I'll say, well, let's talk about grace. Uh, Pastor, I'm already saved. You know, I, I made that profession. You know, I'm saved by grace. I'm already saved. Well, we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about sanctifying grace here. What's that? See, that's the problem. That's the problem. Remember, he's talking to believers here, right? Verse 2, 1 Timothy 1. Write this down under the application. I think most believers think of grace as an attitude of God towards us. That's it. An attitude of God. Oh, you've shown me so much grace. Thank you for that nice attitude. You smile on me. Thank you so much. He does. He has a gracious attitude towards us. But it isn't just an attitude. It's the power of God working. It is active power. Now, does grace actually do the saving? Yes, Ephesians. I know I don't need to take you over there, but I want you to look at the verse, Ephesians 2.8, because we get this one wrong. I could ask you the question, how is a believer saved? And most Christians will say they're saved by faith. Right? Wrong. Ephesians 2.8. How is a believer saved? By grace are you saved. You have been at a point in time in the past. He's talking to believers. So, we call it saving faith, but that's wrong. It is saving grace. Please write that down under the application. It's not saving faith, it's saving grace. Your faith doesn't save you. It doesn't say that in verse 8, does it? Some of you are thinking, this is wrong. He's teaching heresy. My faith does. We're saved by faith. No, you're saved by grace. Were you dead in your sins going to hell? And grace caused you to move into a relationship with Jesus Christ of salvation? I'd say that's power. From dead to alive, from hell to heaven, that's power. Please write this down. Faith doesn't save your soul. I'm sorry if you're disappointed in that, but your faith in Jesus Christ to convert you did not save your soul. Faith is the vehicle of salvation. Notice, for by grace you've been saved through the bridge or vehicle of faith. You have faith in Christ alone, and Christ honors that imperfect faith in an agreement where then he he bestows grace to convert you. Faith is the vehicle, not the power of salvation. Our faith alone has no power to save. Your faith daily to trust in the Lord in prayer has no intrinsic power. But when you turn to the Lord in prayer and faith, it's the same sanctifying agreement. I am nothing. I was hell bound. I have no intrinsic power in myself to transform myself. And only you can do this. I believe by faith that you can transform me. That is agreement A faith statement that is an agreement to trigger the grace sanctification of God as well. So faith is a vehicle, not the power of salvation. Our faith alone has no power to save. God looks at our faith in Christ and through the power of grace saves us in response to our faith. God looks at our faith in Christ and through the power of grace saves us in response to our faith. Have you noticed that people in our culture like to talk about faith? 
I have faith. And they stop it. They put a period after that. It's the end of all. Faith in what? Anything you want. They used to say that in Alcoholics Anonymous sessions. You can have faith in porky pig or your coffee cup. The object of faith is irrelevant. The power is the faith itself. That's heresy. That's paganism. I have faith. I can move a mountain. I believe in myself. That's what Arnold Schwarzenegger th thinks. He believes in himself. The uh, person interviewing him said, well, yeah, but, but what about after death? <coughs> and uh, Terminator said, uh, talking about the termination of death, while I just believe, then I can't do his accent, I'm sorry. But anyways, I just believe, you know, I just believe that it's going to be good after. He has faith. Who's he having faith in? His own mind. That's paganism. He believes in his own thoughts. We're not to trust our minds, folks. We don't trust our minds. If somebody says, well, you, you, you trust your own mind to believe that it's by Christ. I'm not trusting my mind. I'm trusting the Bible. I first have to believe the Bible is the word of God. Then I put my faith in Christ by believing his word. I don't trust my mind for salvation. I can't trust this at all. I trust God's word. There's a profound difference. I'm untrustworthy. God's word isn't. So in verse 8, it's grace that saves, not of yourselves. It's your faith. You say, well, doesn't God give us faith? Yes, but it's a decision of the will. It is a gift of God. Grace is a gift. Jonathan Edwards said this many years ago. The new birth requires an immediate infusion and or operation of the divine being upon the soul. Grace is an immediate work of God's almighty power, Jonathan Edwards said. It is like the change made on Lazarus when Christ called him from the grave. At the call of Christ, there was immediate life. Conversion is frequently described in Scripture as a calling. The call is done at once, not gradually. Conversion is instantaneous, folks. When you repent and you ask Jesus Christ to save you, it's full, complete, instantaneous grace empowerment conversion. Instantly, the Spirit of God moves in and instantly creates the new nature and lives within your mind. Jonathan Edwards concludes, Christ, through his great power, must only speak the powerful word, and it is done, and the sinner immediately comes forth like Lazarus. That's powerful. Letter F, grace must also then be the foundation of all Christian living. <coughs> grace must be the foundation of of all Christian living, and also as the foundation of church service. We're looking for God's unmerited power. I encourage you to replace the word favor with power. It is unmerited power towards us to save us, to sanctify us, to enable us. Christians say, oh, I could never go door to door. What are they saying about the grace and power of God in service? It's worthless. I could never do that like you guys do it. I could never give the gospel out into anyone. I, I just don't have what it takes. Oh, so you're an unbeliever, are you? And they'll say, what? What do you mean am I an unbeliever? Well, the grace that saves is the grace that empowers to sanctify, and it is also the power for service. The grace that saved you and made you alive when you were dead is the power that equally can transform you as you submit to his calling on your life to be an evangelist. Christians are blaspheming God's word and blaspheming Christ by saying, oh, I could never do that. If there's any ministry service that you would say in this church that you could never do, now you women aren't called to be pastor, teachers, and elders, that's different. 
But that which, 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 which is within the call of God in his word, if there's anything that you say, say to yourself, I could never do that, I don't have what it takes, you are a rank legalist. You believe then that you serve based on your own merit and ability, and that would have sent you to hell if you'd believed that thought to get converted. See? So we have to be very careful when we start limiting grace. Because grace is not to be limited. It is a power to transform, save, and enables us to serve. Now there are two opposite countering ideas that slam into the church today. And I'll just give them to you and we'll pick it up next time, next Sunday. These are the pillars that destroy grace working in a believer's life and in a church's life. Number one is licentiousness. Licentiousness. I'll spell it for you. L-I-C-E-N-T-I-O-U-S-N-E-S-S. Licentiousness. L-I-C-E-N-T-I-O-U-S-N-E-S-S. That's one. And the other is legalism. L-E-G-A-L-I-S-M. Licentiousness and legalism are infections spiritually that are all within the body of Christ, have been for 2,000 years. In fact, if you were to study the New Testament epistles and look at each of the church age epistles and analyze the various churches, you will see Paul and the apostles are warring against Movement by believers in these epistles, in these churches, towards those extremes. Licentiousness. The Corinthian church had given itself over to licentiousness. The Galatian churches had predominantly given themselves over to legalism. And various degrees in between. The worst of legalism is in the Galatian churches. And the worst of licentiousness among believers is manifest in the Corinthian church. What is licentiousness? Licentiousness is defined in Galatians 5.13. Turn over there. We'll just define these terms and then we'll be out of here. Galatians 5.13. If you recall the freedom, brethren, talking to believers, what does it mean to be free in Christ? Free to do anything you want? If you think that that's what freedom is, you're licentious. It is a license to sin. Licentiousness is this. I am free in Christ to commit any sin I want because I'm saved. Paul renounced that in Romans 6 at the beginning. Shall I sin that grace may abound? That's licentiousness. I'm no longer under condemnation. I commit any sin I want. Notice verse 13. You're called a freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. That's your sin nature. Your freedom is not an opportunity for you to sin. That's extremely dangerous. Call to freedom is passive. God does the calling. That's referring to your conversion that freed you. Freed you from what? Not sin. You're still a sinner. Your conversion didn't free you from sin. It freed you from the lordship of sin. Galatians, or Romans chapter 6 tells us that. That you are no longer slaves of sin. So the freedom there in verse 13 was freedom from the lordship of sin as you submitted under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Do not turn it into an opportunity. Do not let your freedom be an opportunity for lawlessness, in other words. An opportunity, that word opportunity in the Greek there means a base of attack. It's like a fort. Do not let freedom be the fort or the basis by which you can operate your flesh with impunity. 
with just running wild. Okay? But through love, be enslaved to one another. See, notice, enslavement is part of freedom. You were freed from the lordship of sin to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ, and you were freed from narcissistic, lawless self-gratification to love serving one another. So that's licentious. Licentiousness. What's legalism? Oh, uh, we've talked about this many times before. Nine times out of ten, Christians have no idea what legalism. Let me give you the false definition for legalism. Legalism is having to obey laws. That's not legalism. That's not legalism at all. In fact, look at Galatians 5. Galatians 5. That's, that's obedience. That's licentiousness. See, a legalist, people who renounce legalism and think legalism is obeying laws, they're actually licentious. See? When somebody says legalism is that terrible sin where you think you have to obey rules in the Bible, that tells me that person is Galatians 5.13 lawless, licentious, see. Look at Galatians 5, verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the what? Oh, so Paul's telling us to obey the truth in a context of chapter 5 where he's renouncing legalism. So to renounce legalism does not mean you renounce obeying the word of God. Are we clear on that? Next Sunday, I'll define legalism. There's three types of legalism. I've taught that to you before. Don't have time to do it now. Legalism number one is Pharisaical. Legalism number two is Galatians 3. Legalism number three is Galatians 5. Three types of legalism in the Bible, and we'll define what legalism is from the Word of God next time. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Thank you for your word, dear Father. It is so clear, it is so powerful because it is empowered by you. Strip our minds of strongholds of wrong thinking. Trite aphorisms we hold to that we think are true because we're arrogant and licentious and we believe our own minds when we should renounce anything in our minds that we hold to unless we can find a sure defense from the word of God. If nothing else, Lord, convict us this morning to not trust our own thinking unless our convictions are founded upon clear, accurate translation and interpretation of the truth. As Spurgeon said many, many decades ago, our blood should be bibbling, boiling with truth, and we're not going to stop legalism and licentiousness, Lord, by a few minutes and a daily bread every day. Such devotionals should be the beginning of our scriptural journey, not the end in and of itself. What fools we are. How arrogant we are, God, when we think that we can think Christ-like and biblically and have maximum biblical convictions in our mind based on such a minimal, very little time spent studying and obeying the word of God. The less we spend time in the word, Lord, the testimony of your word is the more we are captured by either licentiousness or legalism. And in fact, the sad and twisted reality is the more that I become legalistic, the more I also become licentious. 
They're wicked twins that actually work together. As they oppose each other philosophically, Lord, they also partner with each other into a wicked devil's brew that destroys everything about grace. The enemies of grace, then, Lord, are licentiousness. I can do anything I want because I'm saved by grace. And legalism is the enemy of grace by saying that now that I'm saved, I must be sanctified by the law. And that's legalism. We can't be sanctified by the law because all it was meant to do, Lord, as your word tells us, was to condemn us. Show us in purity and holiness as it was. You wrote the law to show us how wicked we are. The law was meant to drive us to you and to drive us to grace. We can't be sanctified by obeying the law. We obey the truth, not because our obedience sanctifies us, but because by obeying you, your grace sanctifies us. And there is a world of difference. Christians are confused. They're ignorant. They live Christian lives that are defeated and powerless, and they blame it on you, Lord. May that never be for us. As we continue this journey of grace, mercy, and peace next Sunday morning, I ask that you would help us to clear the garbage out of our minds. Think biblically. Trust you and you alone for the power to sanctify us. In Jesus' name, amen.